0: Two,
1: three, four. Is there any better example of the American dream than Arnold Schwarzenegger? What does it take to make your vision a reality? How do you cultivate iron focus to overcome any obstacle and realize your dreams? On the publication of Arnold Schwarzenegger's limited edition two-volume book published by Taschen, we sat down with senior editor and writer Diane Hansen to discuss Schwarzenegger's life, accomplishments, and history of unforgettable performances. The book has been a decade-long collaboration process, and along with portraits by leading photographers Richard Avedon, Annie Leibovitz, Robert Mapplethorpe, Herb Ritz, Francesco Scavullo, and Andy Warhol. It is also filled with photographs from Arnold's private archive and exclusive interviews. Diane's other works include The Art of Pinup, Masterpieces of Fantasy Art, and The Fantastic Worlds of Frank Frazetta. Diane Hansen. Welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you for having me, Mia. So we're speaking on the occasion of the publication of Arnold, the book that you edited. Actually, we should say two books, really, this amazing illustrated edition of Arnold Schwarzenegger with a companion book as well, which goes into the detail of his amazing career. Just tell us how
2: did that book come into being? Eleven years ago, Benedict Tashin emailed me and said, meet me at our Beverly Hills store. We're going to have a meeting. So when I got there, we go up on the roof and we sit down and Arnold Schwarzenegger and his friend Rolf Muller walk in. Rolf's about six foot five. And of course, Arnold is Arnold. And Arnold sits down next to me and he's looking over at me sideways in his very powerful eyes. And he had just gotten out of the governor's office and Benedict says, we are going to make a book on Arnold Schwarzenegger with Arnold Schwarzenegger and that I am going to be the editor. Well, I am normally, as you might know, the sexy book editor. So I think, well, why me? But Arnold is looking at me with intense eyes. And we talk, we discuss it. We have to wait a year to start the project. And then we go downstairs and Arnold walks right over to the shelf with my books. And he picks up the big butt book and he says, how do you find out everything that is in your books? And I'm like, you read my book? He says, I read all your books. So this is how I came to be the editor.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah, unusual choices. The book goes into the amazing and unexpected life. And we should say several careers which are embodied in this kind of unlikely American dream. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he has a vision and it's different. It's unique to him. And so you might not have been an ideal choice for other people, but for him, you are perfect. And what do you feel that he saw in you?
2: Well, it quickly became clear that Arnold and I are very similar. Neither Arnold nor I have a traditional college education. We are both people who grew up in the country, did not have the opportunities for education. We educated ourselves and clawed our way up through our careers, trying to prove ourselves and get respect for our abilities without those traditional backgrounds.
1: Yeah, it wasn't handed to you. And I think that he evidently respected that. And in many ways in his career, it wasn't like he could, you know, chart a path. There had been bodybuilders and he had that early hero of Reg Park. But the transformation to these different stages from the athlete to the actor and to a politician, that hadn't been done. And I doubt that it will
2: ever be done in the same way. I mean, I will bet that won't happen again. Well, Arnold has, and I would like to think that I have some charisma, but Arnold has charisma above and beyond anyone I have ever met in my life. And even before Tashin, I had met many famous people, accomplished people, but never anyone who radiated this power. I would like to read the brief intro to volume one, which came about, well, I'll just start reading. I'm in the cab in Vegas on my way to Joe Weeder's Olympia fitness and performance weekend when the talk turns to lizard people. What about all this weird weather? Asked my driver. Think the government's behind it? We have an evil cabal of people who run this world, you know. Have you heard of the Anunnaki? The reptilians? Most people in government have reptilian blood. I thumb on my recording. That's so interesting. You know, I'm here because I'm doing a book on Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he was governor of California. California. I don't think Arnold Schwarzenegger is 100% human, he confides. I'm going to tell you the truth. He is a half Anunnaki and half human hybrid. They call them blue bloods. They're aliens, outer space. Really? Do you think Arnold knows he's a reptilian? My driver turns to face me, going 65 on the freeway to push his point home. Governor of California, top movie star for how long? Oh yeah, I guarantee. He's big time and he's totally aware. And so it goes with Arnold, a man whose greatest fear was turning out ordinary. Who hates normal even more than girly men? Is outer space a less likely origin than a tall Austrian? Are extraordinary and extraterrestrial that far apart? My cabbie is not the first to detect a more than human quality in our boy Arnie. Joe Weeder saw the all time greatest bodybuilder and built an empire atop Arnold's broad shoulders. John Milius saw a barbarian warlord and created Conan. James Cameron saw a hero, until Arnold convinced him the villain was more memorable, launching two careers, one badass icon and most beloved line in motion picture history. Call it Anunnaki if you want, but I go with German sociologist Max Weber who in 1892 christened it charisma. Weber's definition is Arnold all over. Charisma is a certain quality of an individual personality by virtue of which he is set apart from ordinary men they didn't mention women back then and treated as endowed with supernatural superhuman or at least specifically exceptional powers or qualities. These are such as are not accessible to the ordinary person but are regarded as of divine origin or as exempt And on the basis of them, the individual concerned is treated as a leader.
1: You really identify the um, amusing aspects. It's just hard to take in all the larger-than-life aspects. And yeah, I just, in your conversations and through the extensive archives, to get, we must say, wonderful photographs from some of the best photographers in the world, what did you come away with that surprised you about Schwarzenegger?
2: I was really familiar with Arnold through bodybuilding. I became a weight trainer myself after meeting him at the 1981 Mr. Olympia contest, but I largely knew him through his movies like everyone else. And when you see him in the movies, he's famous for these very short one-liners that make it seem as if he is nonverbal, that he's not particularly intelligent. You don't get his humor. The first time I went to Arnold's house, I saw that this man is the greatest storyteller, the greatest greatest. greatest entertainer ever. He is funny. He is witty. He is quick. He can tell a story like no one else and not just tell it. He would act it out. He would get up and stomp around and make noises with his mouth. He told me a simple story about a woman in the gym who was not working out, who was just sitting on a bench and talking on the phone to her friend and eating a bag of potato chips. And he was able to replicate the sound of eating potato chips just with his mouth. And then, you know, what she was saying. He he is (laughs) underappreciated. I guess that's what it is. And as I started going through his archive, I saw that there are certain photographs that show him in his facial expressions like none other. And those photographs are always when he is interacting with children or interacting with animals, and all pretense drops away. His face just lights up. It is real, it is genuine, it is open. And that's something that I tried to include as much as possible, particularly in the small book, that is more personal, to show that human affectionate, warm side of Arnold.
1: Yes, indeed. As charismatic as he is, he had shyness, you know, growing up. And, you know, maybe that's the connection with animals, which just describe where Arnold Schwarzenegger grew up, because this is a very
2: rural, very quiet place. It's not just that he grew up in a rural environment, too. He was born on July 30th, 1947. And most of us today don't have any understanding of relationship to what Europe was like right after World War II. The winter of 1946-47 in Austria was the most brutal in decades. The people already had too little food. They were in an occupied country. The summer potato crops failed. As Arnold has said, his mother had to go from farm to farm to farm begging for food to be able to feed her children. His father, like all the men in the village, were defeated from the war. I mean, they were not just defeated by their side losing, but real. What their side had stood for, that they were the bad guys. And he saw them all physically, emotionally, intellectually defeated and taking it out on their wives and children that he was beaten, his mother was beaten, all the neighbor kids were beaten, and they were beaten into a kind of placid defeat beat. And he alone would not accept that. He could not see that life for himself. And he was as a child searching for ways to get out of that. And bodybuilding became that when he learned about bodybuilding as a very poor boy. They lived, you know, on the top floor of a house. They had no plumbing. They all bathed once a week in the same tub in the kitchen. And his brother and he had to bring the water in. His mother heated it and they took baths one by one. Mother first, father second, older brother third, Arnold last in the tub of dirty water. And so he wanted out of that. And as a poor boy, he had nothing but his body to work with. That was it. There was not going to be any college. There was not going to be any of that. There was going to be some kind of menial job or he could use what he had, his body, to get him out of there.
1: Well, it really is Herculean when you think of that and the goals that he set for himself, which I don't know anyone else, although there was a group that had formed a kind of bodybuilding circle, but I don't think that any of them would have had the same vision And determination. And it reminds me of the name of that film that he later starred in, the Bob Rafelson film, Stay Hungry. It seems Mm -hmm. to be almost like
2: a mantra to his life. And he has said that. He has said that he had a hunger and he still has a hunger that drives him always not to abandon what he's already done, but to add on to what he's already done.
1: Yeah. And this competitive spirit from the beginning that I know was also instilled in him by his father Gustav against his brother, you know, that they would be competing. I mean, it seems like there was also a great affection, but never without competition because it seemed to be part of the Schwarzenegger household.
2: And Meinhard, his older brother, was the preferred father's first son. He was the one that the hopes and dreams were pinned on. So Arnold had a lot to struggle against. But as he said, you know, and is quoted in the book, there were other boys in their group who started weight training, who started lifting weights, who were going to these makeshift gyms that they would put together. But only he was relentless.
1: And so little by little, he sets his eyes. Just describe a bit of that journey through his athletic story and then I guess onto that.
2: Well, he went to see a weightlifting competition when he was 15 years old and there was a Russian competitor who won and he had never imagined there could be someone as strong as this man. And he saw him lift on stage and he was so excited by this that he got backstage to meet him and the man was very nice to him and very encouraging and from that moment that was his original goal to be the strongest man in the world not to have the most beautiful body and at the same time he was intrigued by everything he heard about the U.S. that everything was bigger in the U.S. the houses were bigger, the cars were bigger, it was open space there was one shop in town that sold American things and he would see these American bodybuilding magazines and he couldn't read English. So he could just look at the pictures and get this overview of what the U.S. was. And this became his goal. He had one friend, an older man who had been in the English resistance during the war, who could read English to him and would interpret these articles. So this became the dream. Number one, become the strongest man in the world by any means necessary. Number two, he saw the actor Reg Park in a magazine and saw he became a bodybuilder. He used that to get movie roles. And then he saw he had this beautiful home. He had a beautiful wife. He had the son, the dog, everything that looked like the perfect life to Arnold. And so that became the second thing. He becomes the strongest man in the world. Then he gets into movies. And then he gets to the United States. And pretty much that was it at that point. That was the goal. It wasn't until he got to the U.S. that he started telling people and told Ray well, Rafelson that he wanted to be president someday. And Bob Rafelson is, come on, you know, you're not even born here. You can't be president. And Arnold tells him back in 1973, all it takes is a constitutional amendment. So he was already dreaming about a political career, dreaming about what is the very top that a person can reach, can achieve.
1: Yes, because there seems to be a strong commitment from the beginning towards public service and to be
2: useful. Exactly. And you know, I think a lot of people, myself included, do not know how much his father's slogan, Be Useful, continues to affect him to this day. There are so many things that he does that I did not know about, like all of his after school programs, all the things that he does for the poor of Los Angeles. He goes every Thanksgiving for the last 20 years with a truck full of turkeys that he buys to a youth center in East LA, a very poor neighborhood, and he hands them out to the people who come and line up at christmas he comes with another truck full of toys the same thing hands them out he doesn't seek any publicity for this i had the hardest time finding any photos of this because it's not covered he doesn't seek attention for these things but he is continuing every day to try to be useful just like he goes out and cleans the stalls on his animals himself because he is useful that is a useful activity
1: Yes. And so I wouldn't put it beyond him, a constitutional amendment, you know? <laughs> but also, I don't want to skip over his acting career, which a lot of people, like in memory, think about him as being a strong man. But I mean, he also has these comic turns as well and is a storyteller. So he plays against his attributes to bring out this other side twins, of course,
2: being like
1: one of his biggest film, but it was,
2: is up there, right? Exactly. He and Danny DeVito and director Ivan Reitman, who also wrote the film, were willing to work for Re and just take a percentage of the profits. They were able to get the film made. And the studio thought, okay, it's going to be a very cheap film to make. No special effects, no stunt people. It's going to be very cheap and easy. These guys, they're going to do it for free. And everyone involved has made more money off that film than any other film. Arnold actually for the high, high prices that he got for his late Terminator films. He still has made more money off Twins because of taking a percentage. This is a great lesson in determination,
1: but also practicality. And he's a great business head too. I mean, had the foresight to invest in real estate at a time that allowed him then later to have the artistic freedom to not just accept any acting job to be a character actor, but like he had
2: his eyes set on being a star. So You know, it's just really smart. And as he said, he wanted to make money. He knew as a poor boy that he needed to make money to achieve everything he wanted to achieve. But it was never just about making money. He had his personal goals he wanted to reach. And in 1976 or 77, he had an opportunity to go to the University of Wisconsin and just spend a day training intellectually handicapped people with weight training. It was sort of an experiment to see if it could help. Them to you know learn to exercise, and he said he went there not expecting too much. But when he got there and he started having these kids lift the weight, and the kids were at first, "No, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I don't want to do it." And he's like, "No, just put this weight on, just try it." Going through this, he said, when he came to the end of the day and he left, he had a feeling inside of him that he had never experienced before, and he went back to his hotel room. He's like, "What is this feeling that I'm having?" And he, he realized up until that point, he had been selfishly trying to pursue his own goals. And for the first time, he helped other people without getting anything in return. And it gave him a joy he had never experienced before. And he added that on. So while he had just been thinking about making money, achieving his goals until that point, this then became, okay, you make your money. And when you make your money, then you have to use your money to help other human beings.
1: And before that decade in the early 70s, before his great success, you lost, you mentioned his brother, Meinhard. How do you think that both his father's be useful dictum or maybe the loss of his brother might have propelled him to achieve things that, say, his brother couldn't or in the name of his brother?
2: Well, and I think there's another thing that people don't realize. His brother had a young son and Arnold brought that young man in his teens to the United States, educated him, cared for him. He is now a lawyer and he is Arnold's lawyer. So he cared for the boy's mother. He cared for the son. It all happened the same time of realizing that a life is not full unless you are helping others. When his father died, he wasn't there. There was controversy about him not being there. But from that point on, he began bringing his mother to the United States for months at a time. He brought his mother on the film set. He tried to convince his mother to come live in California. She never wanted to, but he became truly, you know, the father. He became the man of the house at that point.
1: And so going from this kind of idea that he had voiced on set to Bob Rafelson to having this idea that he would someday enter politics, there's wonderful confluence of events with Great Davis not fulfilling his obligations. <laughs> Just tell us a bit about that story. Not many know how Arnold took his chance
2: interesting thing about Gray Davis, too, is that he knew he wasn't doing a good job. Gray Davis and Arnold are great friends now. It was not that it was Arnold against Gray. It was Gray was just not working out for the people of California. And so when this public opinion turned against him, it wasn't just Arnold. There was a huge, huge number of people who wanted to run against Gray Davis in the recall election. I have a deck of cards, you know, 52 cards, each one with a face on it of the people who ran against Gray Davis. And there were experienced politicians and there were porn stars and there was Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler Magazine, all these people. But Arnold at the time had been working on one of his child welfare bills, trying to get something passed for after-school programs. And in campaigning to get that passed, people kept saying, why don't you run for governor? Why don't you run against Gray Davis? His wife at the time, Maria, who came from a political family who had seen members of her family murdered, begged him not to. So do not do this. Don't drag our family into politics. And so he held off until he went on The Tonight Show. And he said up until the very last minute when he was sitting in the chair, he did not know whether he was going to run for governor until he was asked, everyone's talking about it. Are you going to run? And he said it just came out of his mouth. The minute it was announced, it was all over the world. Every magazine in the world like Arnold, Arnold, are you kidding me? It's going to be Arnold. And he was very controversial candidate. It came out. Oh, he had fondled women. He had smoked marijuana. Oh, he had done all of these things, and yet he simply admitted it all, and he apologized, and he was sincere, and he said, yes, I did these things, and I'm sorry I did these things. It doesn't change the fact that I have a vision for California, and California is not a Republican state. California has a very low percentage of Republicans. Arnold ran as a Republican. No Republican had won for a while, and he brought people from both parties to vote for him. Because, as he said, people looked at him and they just said, we want the Terminator.
1: Yeah, he had an inbuilt slogan. He's still very strong as an activist. And what do you feel, though, is his legacy or the main things that he achieved?
2: The things that he wanted to achieve, he didn't achieve because, of course, he was the lone Republican. So he had all the Democrats voting against him on everything. Arnold attempted to make universal health care in the state of California. I think a lot of people don't realize this, that, as he said, he had that in Austria. It only made sense to him that everyone should have health care, but he was blocked from that. The really important thing that he did here, however, had to do with climate change. He told me, that he had always been interested in the environment. He grew up being very cautious about everything. You don't waste water. You don't waste power, all these things as a poor child. But he said he didn't really understand what pollution was doing until he became governor. And he got all the memos. He got all the information that is fed to everybody politician that everyone in office knows about and many, many choose to ignore. But for him, it really opened his eyes and he said, we can't let this go on. So he initiated a greenhouse gas cap in California and people fought against it. Are you kidding? It has continued to this day. People have gotten behind him for it, that we will reduce emissions and we will have cleaner air in California and we will have cleaner water and we will have cleaner beaches. He blocked off offshore drilling. And he said, well, because, yeah, when he first came here, there'd been an oil spill and he went on the beach and he got tar on his feet. No one should have to have tar on their feet when they go to the beach. And that was his real contribution that has now led to his activism for climate change and ending pollution all over the world.
1: Yeah. And it's really led the way. California, one of the biggest economies, bigger than many countries in terms of the size. Most
2: countries. (laughs) Most (laughs) countries,
1: yeah. And so it really has this ripple effect because he is a figure who is controversial. However, as you say, it's not conservative or it's not the left, you know, Democrat, Republican, we have to come together on this. So he's really a unifying figure in that sense that you can relate to some of his policies, whether you're from the left or right, but we need to come together on the climate.
2: And as he says, we don't have Republican air. We don't have Democrat water. We all breathe the same air. We all have the same water. It's happening to all of us and it's happening all over the world. And if we just continue to ignore it so that we can put some money in our pockets or we can get reelected, what are we leaving for the future? And, you know, his devotion to children and to helping children makes him look at it from a different perspective. He's not one of these heartless old politicians who's just like, Well, as long as it doesn't happen while I'm alive, I'm going to get rich off of this. He is always thinking of the next generations. He is always thinking of what he is going to be able to hand down.
1: Yeah, I think for a long time, and many people still are, were afraid of the narratives of degrowth, which I think, personally, I think that we sometimes need a bit of degrowth. You can grow too fast. You can grow too big. You need to cut down in order to have a better quality of life. But that narrative doesn't appeal to a lot of people, which is always about getting bigger and actually can make economic sense to go green. We have an environmental podcast, One Planet. And so, you know, there's just so much waste, like if you think about the one thing of food is wasted or you think about. Oh, it's, it's disgusting. God. All these things like the heat that we use can, you know, now we have these smart buildings where it's used to cool the building. You don't have that mm-hmm. loss of energy. So it's just about being smart and efficient,
2: right? And Arnold gets criticism that, oh, well, he flies all over the world. You know, what's he talking about? He does fly. Yes, he does fly. But he doesn't fly in private jets. He's not one of those guys. He's flying on regular planes. He drives a home or he drives a home beach. He had it converted to hydrogen. He's had all of his cars converted so that he's using electricity, he's using hydrogen. These things, however, don't get talked about. He's even switched to an 80% vegetarian diet because he learned about how much methane is released by cattle farming. So he definitely follows his own advice.
1: That's so wonderful. I also like the way that Arnold, but also California, leads the way to make these things that might seem out there popular and Mm -hmm. then just becomes part of our life. You know, we're living in this critical decade. And I suppose in your conversations with Arnold, he said talking about the next generation, what were his reflections on that?
2: Well, you know, he and I talked about his children and the differences between his upbringing and his children. He said when he was a child, if you did something wrong, you displeased your parents, you were smacked, you were hit. And they expected that. And he, growing up and having his own children, had to realize this is not how you raise children. You don't raise children with violence. And he did not have the opportunities for education. So it created this hunger in him, this drive in him to always do more and do more. And he said, well, his own children do not have the hunger that he has, but what they have is education. And they were trained at an early age to help people. That as soon as he began helping people, He introduced this to his children so that his children will not just be rich kids taking money, that they will be involved in social causes to give back and to help. And he has all of these after-school branches all over the country, as I say. Hardly anyone knows about this where children in poor neighborhoods, at risk children have places to go after school so that they can engage in athletics, but they can also have educational help. They have tutors so that they can become smarter, wiser and have the opportunities that he had to claw for without having to be as hungry as he was. We have a photo in the book of him with Greta Thunberg. He supports her activism and He understands that young people are terrified about the future, that they're terrified that if you're 20 years old, 25 years old, and you're going to live for another 60 years, what's going to happen? What future are you going to be facing? And that's something he thinks about all the time. We have to behave ourselves now so that there is a future for these generations.
0: So in continuing this conversation with Diane and about Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think it's important to highlight that both Diane and Arnold are very determined and self-motivated people. They both had unconventional success stories. And I, I think that if we look at Arnold's athletic career, we can really see the seeds for his unwavering faith and determination. My name is Zachary Walter, I'm an associate podcast producer for the process. I'm a track and cross country runner for Williams College and I've been competing at a high level in athletics for a while now. As an athlete, I just find this story so fascinating. To be driven by this, this dream, this vision, and to actually turn that vision into reality. So many athletes, so many people, they just give up on themselves before they even get a chance. That fire, that hunger that Arnold talks about, you know, that's, that's so precious. And I don't think our world, our, our society is really structured in a way that allows people to get in touch with that fire. I think we live in a very docile society. He was known as the German machine, is what they call them, because no matter what would happen on the outside, he would always just push himself without failure. That's just the kind of mental fortitude that he created. You can see that his whole athletic career was kind of a a microcosm, a mini preparation for the bigger and bigger roles that he would eventually take on. You can see the progression of his career. He started bodybuilding, very egocentric career, then moved on to being a movie star. So now he's reaching more people people. Then becoming a politician, now he's actually helping on a daily basis. It's not about him, it's about how can I serve the people of California to make it a better place? How can I protect the environment? It's eventually now, like, what he's doing is essentially activism. I don't think that it means that athletic pursuits aren't absolutely fulfilling, even if they are more focused on self. One's goals, again, it can push you to discover and, and to become things that you never thought you were capable of, and, and that's a gift. Like, if Arnold was never the bodybuilder, he never would have been Arnold the actor, and he never would have been then Arnold the politician, Arnold the activist, the athletic pursuit trained him. People look at Arnold and they're like, oh, look at his body, right? He has such an amazing body, but he has such an amazing mind. To be able to excel at that level requires unwavering faith and extreme determination. And so that athletic pursuit is what enabled him to be able to eventually not only conquer the movie industry, but, but enter into a place of service for humanity. To leave the world in a better place or future generations now back to the interview.
1: Yeah, it's very serious. I mean, we're giving them very little time to deal with the problems that we just squandered our time on. So it is hardening to see that action and for to see his using his personal brand to, to create this massive change, which is in my idea of what really Mr. Universe is someone who can make a global impact and using, you know, unifying not just the body, but the mind and the vision and the clarity of that. We haven't been talking too much about the wonderful, you know, pictures within the Tashin edition, which I believe is a, and the only publisher who could do this kind of body work justice in terms of mm-hmm. the stunning visuals. Just tell us a little bit about of that. And also, you know, Tashin
2: is also a unique brand in the world. Well, whenever I start a project, Arnold or any other project, there's always that moment of anxiety of How am I going to find all these photos? How am I going to learn about this? And Benedict Taschen will say, don't give away all our secrets. But the beginning is always Google. Go on Google, put in the name, put in everything and look at the images. Look. Go in Google Images and just scroll through those hundreds and hundreds of images and open up every image that looks good, every image that looks interesting. Learn who took the picture go look on ebay and put in arnold schwarzenegger magazine and then put a year and keep going backwards you know 99 98 97 96 go all the way back until there are no more magazines 1967 and find out who took these pictures because this is why most pictures are taken all of these fabulous pictures that have been taken of arnold they were taken for a purpose and generally that purpose was to illustrate Media. So find the media, find the name. And then, in the case of somebody like Arnold, you know, he was 65 when we started, he's 75 now. A lot of these people are not going to be alive anymore. So you have to track them down, track down what happened to their archives. In the case where there are people like George Butler, who did the film Pumping Iron, he was in the late stages of Parkinson's disease when I was. Beginning this project. So I flew to New York to meet with him, look at the photos that he had taken, and try to interview him. He could barely speak. His movements were very wild and erratic. I spent a day with him, talking to him, having to sit very close to interview him because he could only speak in a whisper. And then with all of his movements, he was hitting me. He was, and he finally fell into my lap, and I didn't know what to do. You know, I didn't want to shame him or embarrass him. So I just kind of let him stay there and continued interviewing him until finally he just pulled back and said, You are not stealing my memories. Get out, get out. And I'm like, Oh no, oh no. He had, and that was, you know, that was a whole day, a trip, everything that was just wasted that came to nothing. But that's how it goes with a project like this. There, you have to follow every little thread until you get to the end.
1: Yeah, it's really a work of archaeology. And that film, Pumping Iron, that was also seminal because it really put bodybuilding on the map, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger on the map, and showed that charisma for the first time, like a real spotlight on it for those who are familiar with
2: it. before that time, bodybuilding was just considered some weird, possibly gay thing. Ben Weider, the brother of Joe Weider, who was the publisher who made all the American bodybuilding magazines and really brought Arnold to the US, who launched Arnold's career in his magazines. Ben Weider said, Arnold Schwarzenegger was what made bodybuilding straight. He was so exuberantly heterosexual that people say, oh, this is something a straight guy could do. And it could actually attract women. And it just opened the whole thing up. Arnold said very early on, he vowed that there were going to be more gyms than supermarkets across the U.S. And he pretty much achieved that. You know, you go to a hotel, there's a gym. You go to the hospital, there's a gym. All these things came from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Benedict Taschen, like myself, like Arnold, is a man without formal education. Benedict started his business when he was 18 years old and opened a comic book store. He had been buying and selling, trading comic books since the age of 15, made the money himself to open a comic book store, and then went into publishing right after that. And I said, Benedict, when did you have time to go to college? And he said, there was no time. Like, did not go. And so... People are tempted to call people like Benedict, to call people like Arnold, to call people like me self-made, but we're obviously not self-made. We are determined and we use our determination to bring other people into our dream and our motivation to accomplish what we want. And so Tashin sees in Arnold himself and his own determination he sees in me himself and his determination. And so we all come together in that, you know, let's celebrate somebody that most people would not imagine was an art book subject. This has been Tashin all along. You Oh, they make sex books, you know, that's not art. Well, Benedict Tashin said to me at the time when he hired me, and he was trying to hire me since 1994, I said, well, you know, i made porn magazines am I going to have to change everything I do to make art books? And he said, oh, he said, I'm hiring you because I like what you do. We make good books. We put good art in our books. We put good sex material in our books. We do not put bad art in our books. We do not put bad sex material in our books. We do it good and then it's art. And that is what we have done all along. If you think, Arnold is just some muscle guy? Well, go look in the book. Go see how Annie Leibovitz envisioned him. Go see how Robert Maplethorpe saw him. Go see how Andy Warhol saw him. Go see how Herb Ritz saw him. He was inspiration for all of these people.
1: Indeed. And the frontispiece and this amazing kind of Greek column which the, on which the <laughs> book is mounted it is a work of art in the Greek tradition. And you have the Arnold in profile and emblazoned in gold. And so we begin the journey of the athlete, which then harkens back to the great, how do you say, the nest or the birth of what we think of our Western civilization, which is the Greek tradition. So, no, it's completely a work of art and you give justice to the breadth of his career. And I'm also, I would say in some ways, autodidactic. I believe in in learning. I've had some formal training as a visual artist, as a painter. But a lot of that is self-taught from family. And anyone that we've interviewed that I felt was in any way interesting has that strong independent streak. It's not that there hasn't been an educational model, but one has designed one's own syllabus, let's say. And it's just like people say, if you work for yourself, you're self-employed, you're working all the time. It means you didn't go to school within a building that called itself a university, but you were learning all the time. There was not an excuse like I leave and graduate and now my schooling Mm -hmm. is done, which is what a lot of people do.
2: I think for people who are not formally educated, have that insecurity there all the time that there are things we don't know. That, that you know, formal education grounds you in certain names, philosophies, things like that we don't have. And so when we want knowledge, we have to learn very early how to acquire knowledge. I went to the library a lot all the time. in the past, that was how I used to start a project. You go to the library. And when the Internet came along, that was just a wonderful, wonderful move forward that you can just go onto this machine. And seek knowledge. And yet we see so many people who never seek any knowledge from their computers. They're just on there playing games. They're on Twitter. They're, you know, they're just using it for the palest, dumbest edge of what they can do. They won't even look something up. If somebody on Twitter, you know, says, Oh, the world is ending tomorrow, go look it up. You hold the device in your hand that will give you infinite knowledge. And that is what we that is what we get. I think people who do not have formal education. If we're going to accomplish anything, we have to learn how knowledge is acquired.
1: Exactly, and of course, we find even though we participate with a lot of universities, we find that even the major the Ivy League universities have to reinvent themselves just because of that. Access to knowledge to offer something. Maybe in the past, it wasn't always available easily, but they do have to be competitive on that level. And I can say, I think it's a great strength to say one is self made or autodidactic because that means that the information that you had was important to you. Like it wasn't somebody else curated it and it had no real relationship because it was like, I had to do this, I had to pass the test. It goes through people's heads. But when it's important to you,
2: and that's what you do with your books, and you're making something, then that's all retained. Yes, I would say that. The things that are in my brain are all things that I sought out specifically. That So, yeah, there isn't that much filler in there. There's, there's just a lot of it's weird, you know. It's things that I'm personally interested in, you know, like the raccoons that I have on my deck and all the research i put into them. But it is stuff that I really am interested in. And it makes, I think, a richer mental library that I don't have a bunch of textbooks that I was forced to read in my mental library. I have things that I have specifically chosen and curated there. And And Arnold the same way. That is Arnold. He reads. He is the only person I know who has ever said to me, I said, Do you actually read my books? He said, I read every word. And he said, in an interview a long time ago, back in the 70s, somebody asked him what kind of woman he liked. And he said, My 10 may be another man's five. And this is when he's a young man. My 10 may be another man's five because the woman's appearance is not as important to me as her intelligence and that she can teach me something like a strong woman who is interested in learning and who can teach me something new. And how many young men will say this? How many young men have this as their ideal woman?
1: Yeah. And also it goes again, he's considered
2: very much a type, but
1: that seems like the ultimate statement of feminism. So I'm thinking about your career and how you came up, you know, as a pornographic magazine editor. And of course, pornography is different than at that time. So the changing yeah. sexual landscape is something with Me Too. And you've seen a lot of, I guess, progress or enlightenment, but then also people getting uptight. And So what are your reflections on this very
2: complex subject? I was always curious about sex from an early age. And my father was kind of a home nudist. and My brother and older sister and I were all bathed in the same bathtub together until my sister entered puberty, we thought it was fun. We were just in the bathtub playing with our toys and laughing. We'd be in there for an hour. And so I was familiar with nudity, but I always had a curiosity about it. And in the 1960s, there was the hippie movement and the free sex movement, the idea that sex and love were intertwined, that sex should be free, that feminism was sex positive that women should have the right to orgasms, women should have the right to control their bodies, that women should make sexual demands. It was an exhilarating time. And so the pornography that existed then was upbeat. It was friendly. It was men and women working together to make something that seemed like it was actually going to better humankind. And that's how I got into it. As we went on, however, through the 70s and then into the 80s, and the 80s, it got very commercial. And once it got commercial, it began to get less fun. Then they were crunching the numbers and saying, oh, this is what sells. You have to do this. And the creativity was disappearing, which is how I got into doing these niche magazines, these fetish magazines. So I started with Leg Show and Jugs in 1987. Jugs was the kind of ordinary women with exceptionally large breasts so they could be any age they could be any appearance they just had this thing of very very large breasts and metal loved jugs and we got more women who wanted to be in jugs than in any other magazine i ever did because they didn't have to be gorgeous they didn't have to meet any standards except having these huge breasts and then leg show was a fetish magazine And the readers were so complex and varied. They were just fascinating. And I used that magazine to study human sexuality. And my readers were largely submissive males. So I got to see this other side of it and untangle this web of how men and women relate to each other and gender roles. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so this is what I was doing and enjoying. But at the same time, I was seeing hardcore rise and becoming meaner, just becoming meaner. And when online pornographer, pornography first began, you had to pay, you know, people had pay sites and okay, it was another way to make money, another way to make money. We were still assured that no matter what was being created, there was gatekeeping because you couldn't get a magazine without buying it at the store and it was illegal to sell them to minors. You couldn't get a video without buying it or renting it. It was illegal to sell them or rent them to minors. Then suddenly, free porn was on the internet, and it was freely available to anyone. And I have been very curious about the millennials and now Gen Z, who are the first generations who grew up with ubiquitous, free, online pornography of every conceivable kind, and now we hear, well, Gen Z is having less sex than any previous generation. They're not leaving home. They're not having relationships. We have a 4,000% increase in girls who are wanting to or are transitioning to male at the age of puberty. And as an old-time pornographer, I say, well, let's examine all this. Let's look at... What happens when you have a generation who, on average, begin watching hardcore pornography at the age of 12? What effect does this have on us culturally? What effect does this have on a generation? And yet nobody is studying it. And when I even talk about it, people, you know, what? You think kids are watching pornography? You're a pedophile. I'm like, no, I'm not a pedophile. I am going by the statistics. Kids, and I'm talking to them. I'm talking to young people. When did you start looking at pornography? Oh, I was 11 years old. How did you feel about it? Well, if they're females, they say, it scared me to death. Because if you go on Pornhub, just open it up and look. You don't have to do a search. Look at what you see right away. And then imagine being an 11 or 12-year-old girl, seeing that when you're trying to learn about adult sex. And in the U.S., they're trying to suppress sex education. So kids are not getting a formal comprehensive sex education. They're getting their sex education from online porn and we need to talk about it.
1: Yeah, and also it's a big difference from being a pornographic magazine editor to pornography video. That is a big mindset change and one that goes from art and feminists, even notable feminists being involved in some of those pornographic magazines being Germaine Greer with her legs behind her ears on the cover. Exactly, and to the to be something where women don't have a voice and are just subjects or objects and victims, and so I think it's worth a serious study. I actually was speaking, and I know you have to go soon, but I was speaking to a BDSM researcher on various issues and also on trans, and was doing a book on BDSM. And people think, oh, well, there's a lot of violence, and you think about there being victims and you know this kind of thing, but then she said, well, there's very strictly regulations. You give permission you know like the me too wouldn't happen because it's like
2: this is what i'll do this is what i won't and it's very strict yes and as i say my okay, i uh, i have a 26 year old boyfriend we have been together since he was 22 years old and so i know him i know his friends and in talking to them about their experiences with this I realized they They have some very confused understanding about what women like and what women want. And they have to be re-educated by women because they think women want to be choked. They think women can easily engage in anal sex without lubrication. They think that what they see in porn is real life. And they kind of know it's not but they don't know it's not at the same time because then they are taught in school that you have to ask permission for everything. And, you know, can I touch you? Can I kiss you? Can I do this? So they're getting these two messages. On the one side, they're getting the message that that women don't like any kind of sexual contact because they have to ask permission and that there's a good chance they're not going to receive it. And on the other hand, they're seeing all this pornography that makes it look like women want very, very extreme things. And there's no one they can talk to put it all together because who are they going to talk to? Their parents? No, they can't admit to their parents they're watching pornography. There's nobody in school saying, okay, kids, let's come clean. You know, are you watching pornography? And if so, what are you watching? And do you have questions about it? There, there is no arbiter to put these two things together for them. And so the result is they're just masturbating. They're not having relationships. They're not getting together. Yeah. And then there's these online dating apps, which alienate us more.
1: And so we have to, as smart as we are, the data is all at our fingertips. We're skipping some essential steps of what it means to be human and sexual in the 21st century.
2: Indeed. And you mentioned dating apps. Well, this is how I met my boyfriend. And when I got divorced at age 66, you know, okay, how do I meet someone new? Well, dating apps. And for me, and I think for some other women, dating apps can be very reinforcing to the ego. I mean, I was swiped hundreds and hundreds of times by primarily young men. I dated the best looking men I'd ever dated in my life. And I was not looking for a relationship, which I guess made it easier. But uh, That I met this young man who was looking for a relationship, and it just kind of happened. I thought when I was going to find a relationship, I was going to look for someone more my own age. But men my own age were not responding. Men my own age were still chasing after young girls. And it was young men who were confused by what they were hearing in school and then what they were seeing in porn, who were seeking the safety of an older woman, who could teach them things, who could straighten it out for them, who could help them. Could help them navigate. And, but what I really learned from all these young men, because I'm such a natural investigator and interviewer, I would ask them all about it. What are your experiences? What have your experiences been on dating apps? That men do not get swiped, that there's a very small percentage of tall, handsome, successful men who get swiped by everyone. And then a vast number of men who are, you know, not tall not in a business suit, not white, who are not getting swiped at all. And this is making them misogynistic. It's making them very angry towards women. And this is a real problem we're having too, so that they get discouraged by dating apps and then they're just back on pornography and, well, I'm just gonna, you know, go my own way and I'm gonna jerk off and post nasty things about women online. It's been said that originally, People lived in small towns, they lived in small communities, and when all the boys and girls came up the age, they would all kind of pair off and there would be someone for everyone, but that's all gone now. And so you have this 20% of men who get swiped on the dating apps, and you get 100% of women who get swiped by everyone as the guys attempt to make some sort of connection. And it is driving us further apart, as much fun as it was for me, and I got a wonderful boyfriend. Huge.
1: Yes. Well, of course, you are one of those rare women. I think that also, as you said with Arnold Schwarzenegger, you offer as much that they can learn from. And that's the brain is the ultimate sexual organ, I find, as well. I guess you might, since this is kind of like two interviews in one, your own work, Mm -hmm. and also the book on Arnold Schwarzenegger. So as you think about the future and education and the kind of world that we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember?
2: I mean, what I said earlier is that I know it's a struggle, particularly in the U.S., for young people to get a higher education. Now, college has gotten very, very expensive. It's not getting cheaper. It is cutting out more. We are creating a, another working class that cannot access education, and yet there aren't good jobs for these people anymore people are not leaving home. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to make a future. They don't imagine they're ever going to own a home. They don't imagine that they're going to have the money to get married, to have family, to be independent. And I want to remind people that you can educate yourself in other ways. If you cannot afford an education, go on YouTube, go to the University of YouTube. Don't just look at, you know, cat videos on there. There is a world of information to be gained off of YouTube, and I have known several people who have gained an education that way. There are other alternatives, and people are starting to learn this. If you look at some of the heads of tech companies, they are people who are college dropouts. They are people without an advanced education. We are going to be going back to the way it was when I was young, where If you did the work, if you had the knowledge, if you presented yourself well, you could still accomplish something. And so it does not require, you don't have to be a quarter million dollars in debt to be educated. Indeed,
1: you can seek out the knowledge. As I say, don't look for the miracle. You are the miracle. Thank you, Diane Hansen, for sharing your insights into visual storytelling, autodidactism, and also sharing this incredibly inspiring story of the life of Arnold Schwarzenegger, athlete, actor, politician, activist, and for your own contributions to book and magazine publishing. Thank you for adding your voice to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast.
2: Thank you, Mia.
0: The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Zachary Lewalter, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer was Zachary Lewalter. Digital Media Coordinator was Sam Myers. Winter Time was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.